Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it actually all went down. And today I'm joined by Sean Burns. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you started Flurry, and Flurry is one of those companies that's not a household name, but it lives within every household. It's a mobile analytics company, which at one point held over 90% of the market share. It's installed on literally billions of devices around the world, and it lives within 7 to 10 apps per device. Uh, in other words, Flurry has the best understanding of mobile consumer behavior out there. But when you guys got started in 2005, you were not a mobile analytics company. What was the initial concept for Flurry like? I know it's, it's funny you say that. I like, I like to say that we started Flurry back when mobile was a very bad idea, when your state-of-the-art phone was a flip phone or a, a BlackBerry device. And over the course of the company, you know, mobile became a better idea. And then eventually it was the best idea anybody ever had. And today, mobile phones, smartphones have changed the way we live our lives. So it was a fun arc. But yeah, when we got started in 2005, you know, you imagine your state-of-the-art phone was the Motorola Razor. It was a very slim profile flip phone. These phones had no touch screens. They just had the numeric keyboards. And the original impetus for Flurry was actually that uh, my friends and I uh, all went to the same university. And we had in, a university enjoyed the idea that email could be a very immediate experience, that email could be wherever you were. And now that we were out in the real world, you know, unless you're willing to spend money on a BlackBerry, which nobody would buy for personal use, maybe you got one for work. There was no way to get your email wherever you went. And so the idea of Flurry originally was uh, that we could build apps like mobile email for these feature phones. And in doing so, unlock that kind of BlackBerry experience for everybody else. And I had previously worked at Verizon. I understood the mobile ecosystem pretty well. And we knew that the carriers like Verizon, who at the time had a stranglehold on mobile, um, in that in, in so much as if you wanted to release an app, you had to go through the Verizon App Store or the AT&T App Store to get listed. And of course, they they just controlled the ecosystem with Iron Fist. Uh, but we believe there was kind of a different way to go about it. And so that was the goal, is to build a kind of new generation app company. And interesting, along the way in that first year, what we hit upon was a model that we thought was really innovative, which was a mobile app company that bypassed those carrier stores that did not sell through Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile, that actually you went to flurry.com to download our app and then you got to use it on your phone. So we didn't, we went around the carriers. This ended up becoming called eventually um, off-deck or direct-to-consumer mobile in the ensuing years. But at the time, it was really new. Nobody had really built a mobile company like that. All of the mobile companies that existed, the focus was on getting a deal with AT&T, getting a deal with Verizon to be on their app stores. And the reality was not a lot of people were using those carrier app stores because the apps were expensive. They didn't work very well. And being direct to consumer uh, where we didn't have to go through the carriers opened up a lot of opportunity for us. But really, it was, it was, a, it was an interesting time because it was pre-iPhone, pre-smartphone. But even back then, you saw the potential for those smartphones to really have a big impact later. It just would be a few years from there where it actually would kick in. Okay, so that's a pretty interesting start. You guys started off as a mobile development company and eventually pivoted into a tool, a mobile analytics tool that developers use to develop 
their mobile apps. Um, what made you guys want to pivot? And what made you guys want to pivot in the direction of mobile analytics? No, it's a funny story. So as I mentioned, we were building things like mobile email for feature phones. And our original thesis was we would sell that and we would, we would deliver it in the U.S. Um, to go around those carrier channels. That turned out to be a horrendous flop. It was just back in 2006, 2005, people were not ready to use their phones to check their email and use apps. They were really just figuring out text messaging. But interestingly enough, because we were directing consumer, because we did not need to go through a carrier distribution channel, there's nothing that stopped anybody in the whole world from going to Flurry.com and downloading our apps and using them on their phone. And in fact, that's actually what happened. Through a weird series of events, uh, Flurry Mail, which was our email app for uh, feature phones, ended up being enormously widely adopted in the developing world in places like Indonesia and India. And interestingly enough, the reason why was that, you know, we had gone to set out to build these apps for people in the U.S. to bring convenience to them. And it turned out that wasn't a good enough value proposition in 2005, 2006. But in the developing world, they had the same phones we had in the U.S. What they lacked was reliable Internet access at home. So very few people had internet access to their homes. Uh, PCs and laptops were still very expensive. And so a lot of these people would go to an internet cafe. They'd create an email account. They'd go home. And if they wanted to check their email again, they had to go back to the internet cafe. And because Flurry was anywhere uh, and they had the same feature phones that we had, they could go to Flurry.com, install these apps. And all of a sudden now they had access to their email wherever they went. And so we kind of inadvertently solved a very different problem than we set out to because of the approach that we had. And, and Flurry Mail took off like wildfire. It was wasn't one of the most successful products of what people used to call the mobile 2.0 boom. Uh, mobile 1.0, by the way, happened at the same time as the internet bubble back in the late 90s when people thought mobile was going to take off. That was really, really early. Uh, 2006, 2007 ended up being pretty early as mobile 2.0 eventually petered out. But we were really at the, at the zeitgeist of that whole movement taking off. Now, the interesting thing there was um, we were at the forefront of this new movement of direct-to-consumer mobile that was catching fire around the world. And what we didn't have was any infrastructure. There, nobody had done these types of things before, so there was no tools. There were no analytic services. There was no ad tools. There was really no infrastructure at all. And so a lot of what we ended up building were the tools to manage a very large consumer business that was growing internationally. And those tools included things like analytics. And eventually, from 2007 to 2008, we realized that we weren't the only ones anymore. A lot of other companies had popped up in that same vein, delivering consumer services to a worldwide audience, going direct to consumer, and had the same problems we did. And the thing that amazed me is I would go to conferences, I'd talk to these other companies, because the, the community was not huge, but it was growing, and I got to meet a lot of them. The, mo the only metric they had for their business was a number of downloads. So imagine running an app business where the only thing you know is how many people downloaded your app. And you have no visibility into what happens after that. You don't know if they ever opened it. You don't know if they ever used it. You don't know if they use it once and walk away, or they're using it every day or every hour. You have no insight. And here we were at Flurry. We had built a sophisticated system to track our users, to be able to optimize our, our experience. And when people heard about what I knew about our users, they would literally beg me for that tool. They would offer to pay me literally whatever it costs to get access to the platform we built. And I'm a pretty dense guy, but eventually if people keep offering to pay me whatever it costs to get access to something, I know there's a lot of potential there. So it was in 2008, we decided to make the pivot um, from being an app developer ourselves to selling the tools we developed as a platform for other app developers. An interesting side note to that was the iPhone had been announced and released in late 2007. So we were still you know, a feature phone oriented company. 
And when the iPhone was launched, Steve Jobs famously on stage said that it would never run apps, that it was designed to run websites and web apps. And so uh, a lot of our investors had a lot of nervousness that here was Flurry as a native app uh, company pivoting to becoming a native app platform in a time when Steve Jobs was saying that native apps, their days were numbered and the future was web. And so when the App Store launched in 2008, right around when we were finishing this pivot to being a platform, it was amazing timing because it meant that we were arriving at ground zero of the native App Store for iOS and the Android market start, uh, came along soon after. It's now called Google Play. And there we were at ground zero with a platform for analytics that we had developed and refined over years of running our own apps. And that was really the starting gun on an enormous period of of hyper growth for, for Flurry as a company. So you speak on your blog about product market fit, and you mentioned that for product market fit to happen, uh, there needs to be three ingredients in place. Uh, the first ingredient is a real problem. Um, the second one is a real solution to that problem. And the third one is a way to distribute uh, that solution to the people that have the problem. Uh, was there a particular point in the company history where you guys knew that you hit product market fit? Now, interestingly enough, despite the fact that uh, I, I, I learned this lesson, I believe that there was a lot of potential here. Um, even people on the, the Flurry team and even our investors didn't necessarily believe it. In fact, one of my investors told me that if we pivoted to becoming a platform, we would never raise another dime of venture capital money again. And so there was a lot of skepticism and it wasn't ill-placed. I think that, you know, again, you're looking at a company at a time when native apps, um, these, these experts like Steve Jobs were saying native apps, their days were numbered. And here was Sean saying there was a platform for native apps that could be built in a business there. Um, so I think that there was the skepticism wasn't totally um, wrong, especially if you just thought about it academically. But I just have a very strong feeling that you watch the absorption of these apps internationally, that there was an opportunity here. Of course, there's no way I knew how big it would eventually get, but I knew there was an opportunity. I think the idea of, and you mentioned the three parts that are important. I think when we realized we had product market fit with that, we knew there was potential. And so we knew we could build a product that was easy to adopt. And in fact, we realized we had to make um, the initial version of Flurry Analytics free for a few reasons. One is people weren't always sure how they were making money in mobile. Mobile was growing, but they didn't know how they were going to make money. And so if they don't know how they're going to make money, we can't charge them for a tool that they don't know what the relative cost is. So we had to make it free. And besides, in analytics on the internet, on the web, was slowly going to free as it got commoditized so with google analytics and whatnot so it was clear being free made sense so that was an easy way to make it easy to adopt i think the third point you brought up which is a way to distribute it to them the good news is early on we knew everyone in the mobile ecosystem because again we had been in it ourselves and it wasn't that big and so reaching all the initial developers wasn't hard the interesting thing about developer communities too it's very hard to build, build a tool for developers because they're a very tight-knit organization who has very high standards but once you do get in um, it grows very quickly because their the word of mouth is enormously strong and so being developers ourselves um, meant the, our, our pitch could be that you know for developers by developers and that worked very well and so we knew we had product market fit when it started to grow on its own. People started to sign up for our Flurry Analytics without us promoting it, without us talking to them. And that started to grow pretty quickly. And, and at first it was 10 developers a day, then it was 100 developers a day. And it grew fairly quickly over time. And that was really what we saw happening was that kind of organic lift where 
you know, we would, uh, in the initial days, I would jump on developer forums and answer questions and recommend Flurry as a solution. And then when people started to jump on and recommend Flurry as a solution without me being involved in the conversation, well, you really see it started to take off. And so that was the inclination we had product market fit. I think nobody realized, though, in, in the world of mobile, how fast the market itself was going to grow. Because the market started to, I mean, the minute the App Store launched, Flurry as a company started to double every six months for the next six years. Like it was amazing. And that was mirroring the growth of, of smartphones and the penetration worldwide and the adoption of them. It was really amazing. And so the interesting thing in that kind of hyper growth market is that product market fit is actually harder to understand and, and identify. I know that sounds kind of oxymoronical, but you know, in a world where you have a very difficult market or a small market, you can look for product market fit because you know that when things start to take off, when things go well, it's because the product is working. In a hyper growth market where everything is exploding, it's really hard to tell if it's your product is really good and working or the market is just growing. And your market share might be shrinking, but the market's growing so fast that you can't tell from the numbers. And so a lot of what we tried to focus on at Flurry was understanding how big the market was and how much of that market we had, which is why we were so familiar with the statistics you shared about how much we were penetrated, was the focus came, like, literally, this is a, this is a rocket ship. Let's make sure we are driving the rocket ship instead of just along for the ride. So you mentioned when the smartphone boom was just starting, you guys participated in uh, building the mobile infrastructure from the analytics side. And at that time, there were some competitors out there. Was Pinch Media, uh, the company that you guys merged with in 2008, a competitor of yours at all? Oh, absolutely. I think there were, there, well, there weren't many of us um, at the time. So Pinch Media was definitely one of the handful of companies out there. I think of, of the companies that started at that point, they, they got started earlier than we did. I think they launched their platform for mobile analytics earlier than we did at, at Flurry. Um, and so as a result, they had a bit of a head start overall. And there were a number, probably, but not more than a half dozen companies that tried to do something like that around that time. Because again, you had to realize that the world thought mobile web was going to take over, that these native apps, their days were numbered. And so to be very contrarian and, and believe that native apps had a future wasn't a popular perspective. So there was never an army of competitors. Pinch was definitely one of them. And then, you know, over the next you know, starting in 2008, you know, going through 2009, we both experienced enormous rapid growth. I think that the difference between the pinch media strategy and the flurry strategy was interesting. And one of the reasons that flurry ended up absorbing pinch media instead of vice versa was that, you know, there, you have an enormous long tail of mobile developers. Even today, you know, you think about the world of you have um, this kind of power law distribution of developers, a lot of, you know, two person development shops. They don't reach huge audiences, but they generate a lot of apps. And then you have a handful of the biggest app developers who command an enormous audience and a lot of revenue. One of the things we did at Flurry was that because we knew the market so well, we knew these people, we, we kind of per pursued a, a dual strategy. We went after the largest developers through a direct sales model. And we also pursued the long tail through a self-service freemium uh, business. And in a new market, you can do that. Because the small long tail and the large players can use the same product. You can sell the same product to both of them. 
And in a world of, you know, until eventually the market matures and the needs diversify and bifurcate, and eventually you have to sell a very different product to the enterprise than you sell to the small developer. But in the early days of a market, like in mobile apps, you could sell the same product to both. And so we pursued that kind of dual strategy, whereas Pinch focused very much on the long tail self-service strategy. And the reason um, that that ends up becoming slower is that the smaller players become more and more difficult to roll up. Whereas you can create this interesting virtuous cycle if you go after the big players first. So if you go after the big players in a market, the brand names, and you close you know, a brand everybody's heard of, say like eBay, and then you roll up a bunch of small players, then you have two things going. You can roll up, say, 100 small developers and say, listen, we have 100 developers on our platform. That can help you get that brand name of eBay. And that helps you get the next 500 developers. So now you have 600 developers in a brand name. That can help you get the next brand name. Maybe it's you know, EA Games. And now you have two brand names, and that helps you get you know, another 1,000 developers. So now you have 1,600 developers in a brand name. And so the brand names and the, the numbers of developers become this virtuous cycle where you essentially can have this compounding rate of growth. And so I think that while Pinch Media had a head start, Flurry's growth rate accelerated a lot faster because of that kind of virtuous cycle we had created by going after two parts of the market simultaneously, which worked out well. We also had the advantage of having been around for a while. So we had the team in place. Pitch Media had gotten started from scratch. And so there's lots of differences, but it was interesting to watch that dynamic kind of erupt um, over that time. But frankly, both companies were very well positioned to grow. And, and, and you know, fast forward to the end, we ended up merging at the end of 2009 um, because the what we acknowledged was that we could keep competing, Pinch Media and Flurry, um, and really just beating our heads against the wall trying to win. Or if we joined forces, um, essentially what would happen is we don't have to worry about competing anymore. We can focus on the bigger picture aspects of really running the market. And so when we uh, ended up uh, Flurry Absorb Pinch Media at the end of 2009, you know, we had become virtually the only player in that space, um, controlling um, over 90% of the mobile analytics market, which was huge. And frankly, a very important point that we'll get to later where in an early market like that, consolidation is so important because whoever wins the, the race to market dominance wins because the number two is just, there's not enough left for a number two to become very big. And so it became very important to win and that's, that ends up happening along the way. So it was a very important moment. And I think that you know it requires a lot of humbleness on both sides. I think a lot of founders want to win, but to have two competitors, you know, the meeting of the minds and say, listen, we can keep, keep competing and feed our egos or we can join forces and really win in a much bigger way is, you know, it's difficult for a lot of founders, but it's often the right decision. As an analytics company, Flurry is essentially in the business of data. And with data, you can't avoid the topic of privacy. Uh, what's your stance on how tech companies should approach privacy in 2019? That's a hard question. I, let me talk about a little bit of the history of Flurry. The interesting thing about Flurry was that they never really collected very much detailed information about consumers. And so we knew what app you were opening and what kind of phone you had. And in some circumstances, we knew where you were, but in most cases, we didn't know where you were in terms of GPS location. But I think that the phone is a very private device. And I think that much more so than your web browser and your computer. And so the idea that that a company might watch you on the browser and your computer is less intimidating than somebody following you on your device, on your phone. And I think that there was a surreal moment at one point where I was walking down the street in San Francisco, realizing that Flurry software, the software I had written, was in the pockets of every single person I passed on the street because they all had a smartphone of an Android or Apple device 
and all those devices had Flurry software on it. It was a very surreal experience to think about having that kind of impact as a technologist. But you know, the flip side of that impact is that all these people now feel like there is something watching them on this device that goes with them everywhere they are. So I think that the reaction to privacy around mobile is very warranted and very healthy. Um, and you know, Flurry, we tried our best to set a good example in that space about having best of breed practices. I think that today in 2019, you're seeing the end uh, of that first wave of reaction to it with uh, GDPR in Europe, the, um, the the Personal Privacy Protection Act. And I think you're going to see a lot more of them internationally as more and more countries begin to regulate privacy to prevent abuse. Because there were many abuses in the early days, things that were probably shouldn't have been done that were done, uh, not by Flurry or the bigger players, but a lot of very seedy and um, dangerous decisions that were made. I think that the most important thing you can be as a company in 2019 is proactive um, and hold yourself to a higher standard of privacy than the law might require of you. Not just because you should, as a a moral and ethical human being, not want to abuse things, but frankly, the laws are going to get more strict over time. And if you are proactive at getting ahead of it, you won't be caught uh, flat-footed. There's a long history of analytics companies that pushed the envelope around privacy, got swatted down, and never really recovered. Um, There was a great scandal around um, the use of uh, flash cookies, what they called persistent cookies on browsers, when you know a cookie in your browser is supposed to expire and you should be able to flush it. And a bunch of analytics companies in the mid-2000s realized that they could create cookies using flash, which obviously is gone now, but that would never expire, that you could never get rid of. And it was a way to keep tracking a user even beyond the point which they would like, which is an enormous abuse of technology. And they they had, they paid a very significant price for that. But I think that there's always a temptation to push the envelope and it always ends up becoming a long-term burden. So being proactive in, in so much as, you know, my new company, Outlier, when we're, we're building a new analytics company, a new data business intelligence company here, very fundamentally from day one, the belief was we have to have a privacy approach that is going to be fully compliant with even the most restrictive privacy laws that could ever be passed. And so you essentially end up building businesses like Outlier, which are designed to be PII or personal information free, where you know nothing about the users. There's no way for you to know anything about a consumer. There's no way for you to possibly get the data about them so that there's no chance of running afoul of these kinds of laws. Outlier.ai and Flurry are in quite similar spaces. Do you see Outlier as a continuation of Flurry in some ways, or is it a completely separate entity? Uh, so it's funny you say that. Outlier did grow out of Flurry, but not in the way you might expect. So Flurry, at the time we were acquired by Yahoo, was huge. And so we had, I think, around a half million customers around the world tracking millions of mobile apps on, as you said, over 98% of all the smartphones in the world. The market dominance we had was enormous. And I did end up traveling and trying to meet as many of those developers as I could. I, I only really scratched the surface. You know, 500,000 customers is a lot of customers, but I tried to do as best I can. And one of the things that I noticed over the years was everywhere I went, every developer I spoke to and every kind of business always told me the same thing, which was, listen, I love Flurry. I love the data you give me. But listen, Sean, what in the world am I supposed to look for in all this data? And what they were saying was that you know we gave them so much data and they, they cared about things like revenue and active users. But really, they didn't know where to look for all those hidden problems and hidden opportunities that were really in the data. But you know, once there are hundreds of metrics and thousands of dimensions, where do you look? How do you know what to look for? I mean, it's technically all there. 
if you were to go to the right page and the right formulation of segment variables in your your UI, you'd see those things. But really, how do you know what to look for? And that question really stuck with me, and I couldn't let go of it. And the problem with being a vertically integrated provider like Flurry was is it's very hard to kind of fundamentally rethink what you're doing in a lot of ways. And this question that was being posed about what to look for in the data was a fundamental rethinking of what we did. And we never quite, you know, would be able to get to that point. And so when Flurry was acquired and I took some time off, um, I looked at a lot of different ideas of what to start for my next company, but this question I couldn't let go of. And so Outlier today, you know, is, an, is what we call an automated business analysis platform, which is a fancy way of saying it uses artificial intelligence to tell you what to look at in your data, to help you understand the questions you should be asking. So it really is an answer to that question I kept getting that I wasn't able to answer at Flurry, but now an outlier um, have a great chance to do that. And the good news is, you know, even if had, if Flurry had done it, it was probably early in the market, just the same way Flurry was early in the mobile market. When I started Outlier in 2015, it was early for people to trust an artificial intelligence system to analyze their data for them. But you fast forward now to 2019 and people are very receptive to the idea and actually actively looking for solutions like ours. And our, our growth rate is very rapid as a result. So sometimes you have to be very early to be uh, on time and you have to be early enough to be ready for the market when it's ready for you. And so that's happened again with Outlier here. So after you had the experience of building Flurry from the ground up towards a very successful exit, uh, was it easier to start a new company after that? It depends what you mean by easier. Um, I knew more of what to expect. I think the first time around starting Flurry, I really had no idea what to expect. Um, I learned a lot of lessons the hard way, especially dealing with the stress and the unknowns is very difficult. So I knew that coming in. I knew why I wanted to do it. Um, and so that was good. I think the downside is there's there's only so much you can do to mitigate the stress. I think it's just it's a hard process. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. Starting a company is very, very hard. And so it's hard as well. Uh, the way I like to tell people about the second time around is you know, the first time is a lot like riding a, a new roller coaster for the first time. You don't know when to be scared. So you're scared the whole time because you don't know what's coming next. And so you're essentially white knuckling it the whole time. The second time you ride on that same roller coaster, you know when to be scared. So most of the time you're pretty relaxed. But when you know to be scared, you're more scared than you were the first time because you know exactly how scary it'll be. And that's a lot like what it is the second time around. Um, the second time around, you have some advantages you didn't have the first time, which is, you know, I had a network of people from Flurry who wanted to join my new company, um, which is always helpful. A lot of our early team here was from from Flurry and Flurry alumni. You have a network of investors, um, those sorts of things. Uh, unfortunately, those those resources only go so far. And so, for example, with investors, my observation is that as a second time founder, it's a lot easier to get a first meeting with a venture investor. But after that first meeting, you're on your own. You're basically in the same boat as everybody else. And I don't want to undercut getting that first meeting is hard as a, as a founder. So that that advantage is non-trivial. But it's not like people just write you money, write you checks for free um, off the bat. There's many second-time founders I know that have struggled to raise money for their companies. Um, so you do have some advantages, which are good. And at the same time, you have some disadvantages. So I think that being a first-time founder, you have the advantage of not suffering from a lot of preconceived ideas. And so you can reinvent the wheel. So in the world of Flurry, for example, everybody who had any experience in mobile wouldn't have even dared to cross the carriers. They wouldn't even try to go around Verizon, around AT&T. But we were first-time founders. We didn't know any better, so we just did it. And it turned out it worked. And we got lucky. Um, a lot of success, frankly, is luck. 
but we wouldn't have been in a position to get lucky if we had followed conventional wisdom from experience. And so one of the things you constantly are fighting as a second time founder is trying not just to do things the way you did them last time, which probably aren't relevant anymore and might not have been right in the first place, and really focusing and trying to relearn lessons from the ground up. Um, so it's fun. Obviously, I came back again, so I enjoyed it enough to do it again. But um, at the same time, it's it's just as hard as the first time, just in different ways. So you mentioned for founders that are starting their first company, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Like in, in many cases, you simply don't know what to expect. And in the very early days of Flurry, you used to work insanely long hours, as many founders do. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that you had a fear of failure. And I feel like on one hand, uh, having this sense of mortality could be a very great motivator uh, for founders. But on another hand, it could cripple them. Where do you draw the line between fear of failure as a motivation versus um, essentially paranoia? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I used to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week at Flurry. I was afraid because my bank account was getting smaller instead of larger because I wasn't getting paid and I was stressed. And I, wanted, I thought that the more I worked, the higher my chances of success. And the second time around here with Outlier, I have a much healthier approach to it where you know I make time for sleeping and I make time for exercising. And the difference is not that the fear of failure has gone away and not that the paranoia is not there. I mean, frankly, if you don't have those, it's very hard to do the things you have to do to make your company successful, right? Something has to drive you to be irrationally persistent. Um, There are, I mean, to be honest with you, there are a lot of founders who have rampant narcissism and other sorts of things that let them be persistent in the face of of clear and certain fate. And, um, but I don't have that. So what drives me to overcome these impossible challenges is a fear of failure, but also a, a paranoia and passion for, for winning. I think that what's changed for me is a realization that I had where, you know, the number of hours that you work is actually not directly related with your productivity and definitely not related with results. And it took me a long time to realize that. And when I did realize that, um, I started to have a very different philosophical approach. And so today, the reason I make time for exercise and sleep is I treat those as part of my job now. So my job is to get a good night's sleep because then I have a higher stress tolerance. I'm more creative. I can do better work. I need to exercise because if I exercise, my fitness is higher. I can, again, deal with stress better. I can be more productive. And so these things are part of my job because I've found um, that they improve my productivity and improving my productivity means that I'm more successful. So today, Outlier is you know an 18-person company. Most of the people on our team are parents. And I think there's a, a large misconception in the tech industry that parents are less productive um, because our people, you know, they drop their kids off at school in the morning, they come to work, then they work all day and they leave to go pick their kids up from school and they you know, have dinner with them and have bedtime and then sign on after the kids go to sleep at night. So you don't have the luxury of working 12 hours a day, but at the same time, this team at Outlier is more productive than Flurry would have been at the same size because um, of these acknowledgements of the disconnect between hours worked and productivity, but also because you know we are very passionately focused on what we're doing. So we have no foosball tables in the office. We don't play around. We're at work. Everybody here is working really hard. And when we're not working, we're relaxing. And that ends up being a very good balance. That means that we're more productive. And so it's taken me probably too long to learn those lessons, but they're very important lessons. And I'm glad I learned them before it was too late. So this fear of failure, while was probably incredibly stressful for you at that time, has obviously turned into a very positive outcome. Uh, Flurry was acquired by Yahoo in 2014 for somewhere north of 200 million. Uh, could you tell us more about how it actually all went down? Yeah, well, I, I will first start off by saying that, like, 
you know, keep in mind, Fleury was a very good outcome, but along the road, it was insolvent twice. Um, I think of the nine years I worked there, I got paid six of them. So it was a very rocky road. It wasn't just this constant um, march of success. It was a business that was up and down and up and down and up and down and, you know, on death's door more than once that had to be pulled back from. And so it was a very rocky road, but it did have a very good outcome, um, which is good. I, I have a, an interesting side note, which is that you know the, the reported acquisition price for large acquisitions is universally never correct. It's always wrong. Um, and it's the case with the flurry acquisition price. But it, there's a reason why it's wrong is that the acquisitions are very complicated. And so often the acquisition price is leaked by um, an investor or an employee who sees part but not all of the deal. Um, so it's always very entertaining to me when people try to peg a price on these large acquisitions because there is the the price paid for the equity, there is the price for the retention packages for employees, there are all sorts of interesting aspects of you know liquidation preferences and this and that. So the the prices are always all over the price, and so this is why you just never trust what you read in in the paper about acquisitions. But how did the acquisition of Flurry come about? Uh, by 2014, which is the year that uh, Flurry was acquired, uh, the world had changed a lot. So we had been growing rapidly as a company. The analytics business had become the foundation of an advertising business. So Flurry was a very large, very um, cash-generating advertising business using the data from analytics to both target ads and publish ads for our, our app developers. Uh, but the world was changing. I think mobile was evolving. People had woken up and realized that mobile was native apps were here to stay. And it took them a longer to realize that than I would have guessed. It was really not until 2011, 2012 that Facebook and Google gave up on the hope that the mobile web was going to take over and realize native apps are here to stay. Um, and I think at the time, you think the company was nine years old at that point, um, a venture capital fund, a VC fund has an expected lifespan of around 10 years. It can it can usually be extended longer to like 12 or 13 years, but really a VC fund life cycle is supposed to be around 10 years old. So we're coming up on the end of the, the life cycle of the funds that had invested in Flurry in the early days, uh, and, and frankly, all along that path. So venture investors always have an algebra. Do we want to invest another five years in growing and competing or and maybe becoming a public company? versus the, you know, our fund is almost over. Let's take the value we've created off the table and, and move forward. I think that, you know, personally, I was very burnt out. Um, I had actually had to take a step back from the company in early 2014, just because after nine years, I had just, as I mentioned before, I had worked too hard. I didn't have a good balance. I was just burnt out. And so there's a lot of things about how long it takes you to get there that impact that as well. I think the third thing that happens is that <clears throat> you know, mobile had become such a clear, important strategic value because at the point of 2014, everyone had smartphones and smartphones became the most important real estate. And there were a lot of businesses out there whom did not identify that early enough and had fallen far behind. And Yahoo at the time when Marissa Meyer was a CEO, was uh, they were doing well, but the street was beating them up because they didn't have a clear mobile strategy. And Flurry represented a mobile strategy in a box for somebody like Yahoo. And so when uh, these companies came along, I think the board was very receptive for the reasons I mentioned before, but also it made a lot of sense where, you know, you could come into a company and Flurry could become their mobile strategy and a very strategic asset. And, you know, it worked out very well. I think that, you know, for Yahoo, now, now Oath, um, Flurry has become an enormously powerful asset. The Flurry management team went on to becoming many of the executive leaders at Yahoo and at, um, at Oath. 
So overall, it was an acquisition that worked out very well on both sides. You mentioned on your blog that while getting acquired is a great outcome for any company, uh, planning for an exit is a bad idea. Uh, what did you mean by that? Like, why, why is planning for an exit not a good thing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of founders that come into starting companies believing that they'll just be able to sell their company when they want to. And the reality is that's not how it works. I think that the it's very rare that an acquirer comes along who wants to buy your company for as much as you're willing to sell it for. And that's for a few reasons. One is that when you see the value of your own company, you see the potential of what it can do in the future. An acquirer most often is looking at the value of what you already have. Uh, because they their goal is to extract that potential for themselves when they acquire you. So, for example, you may have a startup company that you think has a lot of potential. You want to sell it for $20 million. An acquirer comes along and they're not willing to spend more than $5 million. Well, that's kind of difficult, right? Are you going to sell for substantially less than you wanted? Um, maybe your investors would take a lot of that. Maybe there isn't enough left for the employees. So that's part of it. The second is that you know, you need all of the players in your company to agree on an exit usually. And so venture investors are looking for 10 to 20x returns on their investment. That's a big return. They're not going to settle for doubling their money. In fact, doubling their money on an investment is a great way to not hit their their returns in their fund because so many of venture-backed companies fail. They need the ones that succeed to be huge successes. And so if you are a founder and you raise venture capital uh, financing, you need to, if an acquisition offer comes along, you have a lot of people have to buy into it and it's hard to get them all aligned in the same place. And I think the third part is, is the timing of it. Like the point at which you want to sell, is it the case that there are companies out there that are looking to buy? Because um, not all companies are always looking to buy. Do they have the cash to buy you? Because um, often you need to align with the strategic priorities of a large company. Um, so for example, Flurry aligned very much with the priorities of Yahoo, but you can't control that, right? You can't control the priorities of a large acquirer. And so there's a lot of reasons why you can't control it. And so what ends up happening is the only sound approach you can have is to assume there are no acquirers and you focus on just building value and building a healthy business so that at the point when you get lucky and those stars do align, you can take that advantage of that opportunity. But really, you know, they say that companies are bought, not sold. And that's so true because the buyer has so much more power because they decide when they're ready. They decide how much they're willing to pay. And as a seller, you really just don't have a large market to sell to. Right. So founders should essentially focus on building the product and growing the company rather than uh, just laser focusing on having an exit. Uh, Sean, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and we wish you all the best with Outlier. Thanks. And you can find us at outlier.ai. Like I said before, we're an automated analysis platform for companies to help find value in your data. Uh, we'd love to show it to you if you're interested and you have a lot of data and you're looking for hidden opportunities and hidden problems. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.